1 Samuel chapter 20, we will read verses 1 through 23, this chapter being full of instruction. Hear now the word of Almighty God, 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And David fled from Naioth in Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father, that he seeketh my life? And he said unto him, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David sware moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field unto the third day at even. If thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me, that he might run to Bethlehem his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he say thus, it is well, thy servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself, for why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from thee, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell it thee? Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me? Or what if thy father answer thee roughly? And Jonathan said unto David, Come, and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord, God of Israel, when I have sounded out my father about tomorrow at any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace. And the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even requite it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again 
because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand, and shalt remain by the stone Azel. And I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a lad, saying, Go, find out the arrows. If I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them. Then come thou, for there is peace to thee, and no hurt, as the Lord liveth. But if I say thus unto the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee, go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away. And as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, behold, the Lord be between thee and me forever. Thus far the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. First in verses 1 through 8, we have David's complaint to Jonathan and his request for help. David fled from Naioth, uh, namely, if you'll recall, as Diodati points out, the day and night that Saul was detained in an ecstasy. Remember, the Spirit of God came upon Saul at the end of chapter 19, and he was, as a prophet, falling down in a trance and stripping himself naked. David then came and said before Jonathan, a friend at court while Saul was in a trance. There is Jonathan at court. David goes to him and speaks to him of these matters. And this friend, Jonathan, who loveth at all times, was like a brother born for adversity, Proverbs 17, 17. David asks Jonathan, what have I done? What is mine iniquity? This is what we refer to as a rhetorical question. Did he expect Jonathan to list the iniquities and wrongs of David? Well, no, because there were none. The point is, I have done nothing wrong. What wrong have I done? None. What is mine iniquity? None. I'm aware of no wrongdoing is what he's saying. There are times when we may bemoan lawfully our circumstances to dear friends, to sure friends, David does so in this case. He does not assume that he's sinless, but in the matter of Saul, he is. He has done nothing to deserve this wicked mistreatment. We should then weep with them that weep. We should rejoice with them that rejoice. We must be piteous or have pity toward our friends, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, as David and Jonathan were brothers in the Lord but even toward all men. And there are times when we may unburden our souls to trusted and godly friends. Jonathan says in verse 2, unto David, God forbid thou shalt not die. Now it is very good of Jonathan to assume well of his father, but perhaps to a fault. We have evidence throughout this book so far that Saul is not to be trusted when he makes assertions 
He will violate his assertions. If he takes an oath and swears by God that he will not slay David, guess what? He tries to kill him again shortly after taking such oaths. But it is to Jonathan's credit that he wants to assume the best of his father. Matthew Poole comments, he says, The worthiest minds are least suspicious and most charitable in their opinions of others. This does not mean we overlook things that violate God's word, but it does mean that we generally should assume the best of our brothers and sisters, of our parents and authorities. We may have reason to know that they are not to be trusted, but in the, in the general rule, we ought to give the benefit of the doubt. David swear then to Jonathan that there was but a step between him and death. It's like if a man were walking on a tightrope or if a man were walking on a ledge of a cliff and the walkway became more narrow and more narrow, one false step and you're dead. That's what he says. I'm like a man on a precipice, one wrong step and I'm dead. And he does this swearing with good reason. This will put an end to the doubt that Jonathan might have by appealing to God who knows all things for the truth of his assertions. That's what an oath is. That's what swearing is. We call upon God to see into our hearts, to witness whether we say what is true or whether we lie. And further, we call upon God to judge us if we're lying and not saying what is true. David then swear. Let not Jonathan know this. This is what David says, lest he be grieved. These are the words of Saul according to David. He's not going to tell you because you'll get upset if you find out his plan to kill me. Matthew Henry comments that none was more fit than Jonathan to serve Saul in every design that was just and honorable, but he knew Jonathan to be a man of more virtue than to be his confidant in so base a plan. He had already told Jonathan and everybody else, bring me David dead, but now he's scheming. Now he won't tell you because he knows what did Jonathan do last time he told Jonathan to go kill him. Jonathan rebuked his father Saul and said, no, what has he done wrong? You're going to sin against innocent blood. You're going to murder your most faithful servant. So David swears that there is but a step between him and death. Now, Jonathan, for his part, as a faithful friend, perhaps to a fault, says in verse 4, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. Now, our good intentions often go to excess. So does Jonathan's. Was it lawful for him to tell David, well, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. There's no boundary mark, is there? There's no exception to this rule. It's stated in absolute terms, perhaps with the assumption that David will not require him to do anything sinful, but the event proves the contrary. We must be willing to serve our friends, but not in whatsoever they request of us. That's very important. Should we serve our friends? Yes. Should we give them a blank slate and say, write down here whatever you want me to do? Many people treat their friends this way and their friends destroy them and lead them to do evil things because they worship their friends as a god. 
Who is it that we can say to, whatever you command me to do, I will do it? To whom may we lawfully say that? God. That's it. You can't say that to a creature. Well, whatever you say, I'll do it, baby. No. That's worshiping your spouse. And so here, Jonathan, perhaps unwittingly, traps himself into lying to his father and taking God's name in vain, a compound offense. David then asks permission in verse 5 to leave and hide himself until the third day. And then verse 6, if thy father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem his city. Is this true? Is this statement that he puts in the mouth of his friend Jonathan true? No, it is false. It is a lie. David instructs Jonathan to lie to his father. Now you'll notice in the text, as we read God willing this evening, Saul doesn't buy this lie, so it doesn't really do any good, does it? But even if it did good, can we instruct our friends to sin on our behalf so that good things come out of their sin? Paul says that people said about him that he taught a doctrine, let us do evil that good may come. And do you know what he said after that? Whose damnation is just. God condemns doing evil, even if we think good will come from it. In fact, there is a school of philosophy or anti-philosophy called pragmatism. Pragmatuo means to accomplish a task or do business. Pragmatismos means my philosophy is how do I get things done? Show me the bottom line. Don't tell me about abstract philosophical moral laws. Just help me get the job done. Politics is pragmatism. Abortion is pragmatism. Lying is pragmatism. Why? What does it say? Well, I don't care what God says about what I'm supposed to say or do. I just want to get accomplished what I want to get accomplished. Lie to your king, to your dad, and say this. He asked leave to go to Bethlehem. What for? For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. Oh, isn't that nice? Now you've brought God's worship into this. Not merely a lie, but a specious religious pretext to cover for your lie. A lie to your king. A lie to your father with God's worship as some kind of cover for this lie. Troubles and distresses generally bring out the worst in us. They show us what frail stuff we are made of. We must humble ourselves. The great David, the godly David, the great friend Jonathan, these men falling into sin in troublous times. We may have an opinion that we are strong, that we are virtuous, that we are wise, that our trials will prove us to come out the victor. But what often happens? We slip, we fall, we crumble, we fold. And then we justify ourselves and see, I had a good reason. I was preserving my life. 
I can tell my friends to lie because I'm looking out for myself and preserving my life. Troubles and distresses generally show us how frail we truly are, that every man in his best estate is altogether what? Vanity, nothingness. Verse 8, thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant. Now there is a word in the Hebrew that is often translated as loving kindness, keeping of covenant, of promise, of oath, faithfulness. It is chesed in Hebrew, chesed. When he says to deal kindly, he says, deal with me according to chesed, keep your covenant. Look out for my interests, in other words. Look out for my life. Treat me as your own soul, as you promised to do. Now, the oath that Jonathan made to look after David as his own soul is a lawful oath. Even if employing wicked means to accomplish it, it's still a lawful goal to treat David as his own soul. And why should he deal with hesed toward David? For thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. God is witness. David's request is more excusable because of this, by the way. If you have a covenant that God himself has witnessed, and he's seen the words that pass between you, should you not behave according to his commandments? Should you not speak as he says you should speak and leave the results to providence? We don't have to say all the truth. We'll find that out here shortly. You can use encrypted communication and not tell people what's actually going on, but to ask someone to say something that is not true is an entirely different matter. There is an unseasonable speaking of the truth, and that is forbidden by the ninth commandment. But to say things that are not true, when God is the witness to your covenant, my, that is not good. Now, this is what we call a proper covenant. Two sides, equal parties, mutual duties. And they fulfill or are to fulfill their duties to one another. Verses 9 through 23, we have Jonathan's promise that he will help David and the renewal of their covenant of friendship. Verse 9, Jonathan says, Far be it from thee, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would I not tell it thee? Of course I would. I would tell you. Jonathan is a faithful friend. He watches out for his good. David then wants to know, verse 10, well, how are you going to communicate this to me? What will be the messenger? Who's going to tell me? Jonathan then takes David to the field where he will cause him to swear yet again. Verse 12, And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, we see Jonathan's faith in the Lord. In the middle of a communication with another human being, he breaks out in invoking the name of God himself. Why? Well, because he's going to swear to David, and he's going to affirm things that God is witnessing and hearing what he says. God will watch my words, Jonathan says. He will judge my heart, whether my assertions are sound or groundless, whether I will keep chesed, be faithful to my oath, or whether I will violate it. 
So he calls upon the Lord, verse 13, to do so and much more to Jonathan. May I be plagued by God himself. Cursed if I fail to send proper information concerning my father's attitude toward you, whether he will bless you and welcome you or curse you and kill you. The Lord be with thee as he hath been with my father. Exalting your throne, David. That's what Jonathan is saying. How was God with Saul? Well, he took him from chasing after his father's lost asses to the throne of the 12 tribes. That's how how God dealt with his father. How does Jonathan want David to have God with him in the same way? As with my father, to exalt your throne over the 12 tribes. Jonathan must decrease. David must increase, just as John the Baptist said of himself. He must increase. I must what? Decrease. I'm not worthy to unlatch the latchet of his shoe. That's how Jonathan thought of himself and John the Baptist. Johannes Piscator says of Jonathan that he has proposed as an example of piety and charity toward his neighbor, insofar as when he knew that it was God's will that David should succeed Saul in the kingdom, he did not envy him this dignity, but rather he wishes him well. Saul has envy to rot his bones. Jonathan has goodwill to lift his spirits. Jonathan instructs David, Thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, this same faithfulness to oath and promise, this chesed, to the covenant and the mutual duties that we have agreed upon. I may rightly demand them of you. You shall not only do this while I live. God avenges those who do not show kindness or keeping of covenant. When men make pledges to one another, when husbands and wives take oaths to each other, God says it's a very serious matter. It is proceeding from him. He requires us to do this at times. And if we make an oath and a covenant, we had better keep it. He hears our words. He knows our hearts. And he avenges the wrong done to such as have relied upon such promises made. Let us keep our covenants, our promises, our engagements. Let us do our mutual duties as husbands and wives, as friends to one another, as parents to children and children to parents. And he says, verse 15 to David, Thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. Again, kindness isn't a uh, beautiful set of roses and kittens and everything's delightful and I feel warm and fuzzy inside. Kindness means you keep covenant. You swear to do something. You promise to do a thing. You do it. That's kindness. That's what kindness means in the Bible in this context. Don't forget your loyalty to this covenant to my house forever. 
Now, this is very important to understand. If a man comes to the throne from a different family, what did they often do in the ancient world? Well, let's round up all the descendants of the former family and do what to them? Kill them all. Wipe them out. We read about this in the ancient tyrants, Abimelech, Judges 9, verse 5. What did he do to all the rest of the sons of, of uh, Jerubbaal? Killed them all on one stone, it says. Athaliah, 2 Kings 11, 1. What did she do? She killed all the seed royal. What did Herod do when he heard that he was born king of the Jews in Bethlehem? Well, let me go all the districts surrounding it and do what? Kill all children from two years old and under. Slaughter them all. Why? Because my kingdom is threatened. Now God, in just judgment, even did this to the Antichrist in type form, Ahab. Remember Jehu? What did he do? Everyone that pisseth against the wall, wipe them out, God said, and he went and did it. Every last one dead, because God wanted that family stamped out. So David, show this covenant loyalty, not just to me, but to my seed after me, to my sons, my grandsons, my great-grandsons. Show me this kindness of the Lord. Even when God cuts off all your enemies, David, verse 15, from the face of the earth, you are exalted on high without a care in the world. Don't forget your covenant. Though you may be exalted upon the earth, you gave your troth, you gave your covenant, you gave your pledge, now keep it. Family covenants and friendships are to descend unimpaired from generation to generation. Thy friend and thy father's friend forsake thou not, the wise man says. This is why Saul's bloody house was to be avenged in 2 Samuel 21 verses 1 and following. Do you remember the obligation that Joshua laid Israel under to the Gibeonites? We'll take you as our servants forever. A covenant was made, descending from how many generations to how many generations? Just went on forever. As long as you're a civil body, you better observe this covenant. Let us be faithful. Keep covenant. Be true and just. This is actual kindness. Sometimes people violate their covenants because they think they're being kind. No, it's the opposite. You keep your agreements, that's kindness. Not violate them and say, oh, well, well, you know, I've just got to get business done. I'm a pragmatist. I don't have to keep my covenants. Yes, you do. God requires it. It's a covenant of the Lord. God sees when we swear to each other. So Jonathan then, verse 16, made a covenant with the house of David. Literally, he cut this covenant after the tenor of these words of duty, of loyalty, and of calling a curse down on covenant breaking, he cut this covenant with David. Remember the cutting of the animals, putting them in two parts, walking through in hand in hand together, a duty mutually imposed upon one another. And if we violate this covenant, may we be like these dead animals cut in sunder by God. 
And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him. Wait. If you love somebody, won't you just trust them? Why do you need words? Why do you need to formalize it? Well, because he actually loved him. Not modern romantic notions of love, but actual love. Where you pledge your troth to do specific duties toward your friend. That's what a covenant is here. That's why he caused David to swear a second time, because he loved him. To bring him into a closer bond, to remind him of the vengeance of God against covenant breaking, to pledge his own sincere love and desire for David's good. That's why he caused him to swear. He loved David as he loved his own soul. Or as Deuteronomy 13.6 puts it, thy friend, which is as thine own soul. How do you think about yourself? How do you care for and watch after yourself? That's how Jonathan thought about and treated David. A true friend. Genuine friendship, I note, is a concrete expression of the second great commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's what it means to be friends. Let us be such friends. Let us perform the mutual duties that we owe to one another. Let us be covenant keepers. People misuse this word all the time. They think it applies to our relationship to God. No, it doesn't. When God says he hates covenant breakers, you know what he means? People who don't keep their agreements to one another. Husbands to wives, wives to husbands, friends to friends, contracts of business. If you don't keep your covenants, you are a covenant breaker. Let us perform our duties that we owe to our neighbor. Let us love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Genuine love is not against formalities such as oaths and covenants. It's not. Oh, I love her too much to actually get married to her. Well, you don't even love her then. Where's the formality? Where's the oath? Where's the covenant? Where's the promise? Where's the duty? Where's the law? Not there? No love. Let us be faithful, kind, covenant-keeping. Not those who have this lovey-dovey notion in their minds of kittens and roses and chocolate. That's not love. Love is a willingness to sacrifice for the good of your beloved. To love them as you love your own soul. That's the type of friend Jonathan was and the type of friend that David was. Remember last week, Anthony Burgess, there are many things in Christianity that people, the people of God make to oppose one another when yet they would promote each other if wisely ordered. Well, my affection and kindness and love versus formality and covenants. No. God says these two go together. They're not against each other. That's foolish. We must wisely order them. Jonathan then prudently orders the place of their final meeting, the manner of his encrypted communication, and the intended series of events as things may fall out. Verses 18 through 22. The stone is called Ezel. This word means to depart, to pass on, or to travel. Possibly a large rock from the heat of the sun where people would rest on the north side of it. But in any case, a place where Jonathan and David would depart from one another. 
Verse 21, if I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them, then come thou, for there is peace to thee and no hurt as the Lord liveth. This is a lawful concealing of facts. That's what Jonathan is doing. He says no wrong. He does nothing evil. All he does is make a communication clearly intended for one party and one party only, that is David. The lad will know nothing of it. And that's fine. We may conceal facts. We are not obliged to tell all men everything all the time. Can you imagine? You can't actually do that. You cannot say everything about a certain event all the time to everyone. It just is an impossibility. The human mind cannot recall enough. People can't hear enough. We must speak truth as it is fit, as it is proper. We must speak no lie, that is true. But here, Jonathan will conceal facts from the lad and communicate facts to David at the same time in the same words. And that is lawful. Let us learn to discern the difference between lying and concealing truth and not abuse the concealing of truth in order to justify lies. No, they are two different things. The Lord... Jonathan says, in the case of his father's anger, the Lord hath sent thee away. God, in his providence, will make it clear to you whether you ought to come back to court or God saying, go. And sometimes providence does this. Indicates by a series of events, this is the manner in which you ought to proceed. The Lord, he says... Be between thee and me forever. The Septuagint enters the word martus, witness. God be witness between us. As Jacob and Laban swore at Mizpah, the Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another, God as witness, God as judge. And thus far, the explanation of 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 23.